Hey there, welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com slash podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Will you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Happy to. Uh, my name is Daniel Seifer. I am a pulmonary critical care um, provider here in Portland, Oregon, working at our sort of quaternary academic institution in town. I'm the director of our interstitial lung disease clinic from the pulmonary half. Uh, you'll hear a little bit more about the rheumatologic split of that uh, as we go through the uh, what we're talking about today. Um, I'm the director of our pulmonary function lab and a physiologist that works in our exercise testing group. Um, you're also one of the smartest people I know. So I'm so oh, honored is, to have you no, on did, did, did No one told me this was going to be like, it's going to make my head get that oh, big. I'm not going to be able to fit through doorways. <laughs> well, we have so many questions for you. Um, so thank you again, just so much for being with us. Um, so why don't we just jump in? We took some questions from the real world NP community, and I just want to really get into like you and I talked about before we started recording that like, how do we bridge the gap between primary care and specialty care with pulmonology? Um, so maybe let's start with talking about asthma. Um, I think one of the couple of common scenarios that we see um, in primary care is like somebody who's coming to your clinic who has a um, kind of quote unquote prior diagnosis of asthma for like their whole life. And they take inhalers here and there, but we don't really have any documentation. They've never really had any testing. Um, we had a lot of questions about like, how do we how do you approach that kind of case? And like, what are some of the things to be thinking about from like your pulmonologist perspective of like just thoughts about diagnosing asthma and making sure that it's not other things than that? Great question. Um, the, I think that this will become a theme as we move through some of this. I think that this is a problem throughout medicine, but of course I'll only speak to the pulmonary side of things in particular today. Uh, I think that the way that things get named can place a... Um, undue weight upon naming them, and it kind of perpetuates itself and rolls forward. And what I mean about that is asthma is a very broad term, actually. Um, it's a heterogeneous condition. There are multiple subtypes of it. There are multiple things that can cause it. And there are multiple phenotypes, which means like how patients will actually present um, what they'll be feeling, what might trigger them or what might not. Yeah. Um, so before thinking about what we call what they have. I think more about how bad is what they have. So anytime I'm intaking somebody for a triage and trying to sort of um, help decide, do they go to our severe asthma providers or do they, can they go to our general pulmonary clinic? Um, do, they, do they get taken directly to me or do they go someplace different? Um, that's one of the questions that I'm asking because it not only, not only does that tell us something about what type of diagnostic and treatment approach we might want to pursue with those patients. It also tells us something about how quickly we have to pursue those things, right? Which is oftentimes the most important piece. And so that's why I'm focusing on that bit for the question. The question being, when do you think about other things? It's like, well, it depends on how bad what they're experiencing it is, right? I think 
uh, I, I admit to certainly having sort of the quaternary tilt of everything I see is terrible, right? <laughs> um, but I do remember, I do remember what it was like to see people that didn't have terrible things. Uh, and the, um, the most common thing with asthma, right, or something like it that had been called it at one point would be, I get short of breath, certain things seem to make it worse, certain things seem to make it better. So it's really dyspnea, they have, they have shortness of breath. Um, and one of the mentioned they may come in on inhalers or not have had inhalers. That's an important piece of their history, but also have they been using it correctly? Who gave it to them? What were the expectations that they heard when they got the inhaler? Um, focused a little bit on like, what, what is asthma? It's a, it's, it's a, um, broadly speaking, uh, would be an inflammation of your airways that you hear in a lot of training is reversible, which is not always the case. Um, but broadly speaking, an, an inflammation of your airways um, from allergenic stimuli, which is also a fairly broad term, um, that when triggered will cause types of bronchoconstriction, which is a narrowing of the airways via um, muscular contraction, right? And over time, if that continues to recur, the airways will also narrow because of inflammatory reactions and eventually potentially even scarring or morphologic changes over time. Um, lots of talk and talk and talk and talk, right? There's a lot of things, but what else, what else kind of falls in there? Well, you've probably heard the term reactive airway disease, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not a term. And one of the things that I wish that everybody knew is to delete that term. I was um, going to say there's I, an ICD-10 code. It really should just there be is, removed. There is. And if I, if there was actually a physical manifestation of ICD-10 codes, I would be in trouble for how many times I would have been like lighting it on fire and burning it and throwing it off a cliff, right? Um, because it perpetuates this. We have to, we have to put something, right? Mm -hmm. but try, try to separate the billing. I'll put billing codes that get me what we need that are relatively defensible um, for the problems that the patient has. I don't see that as putting what they have, putting the diagnosis there, because half the time the things that we see don't actually have a well thought out name or an ICD-10 code, right? Mm -hmm. um, so reactive airway disease, that doesn't make any sense. It should be chucked. Now, where did it come from? It came from the fact that primary care providers were really kind of upset with the American Thoracic Society and in Europe, the European Respiratory Society, um, because they felt like, well, you're telling us that asthma has XYZ characteristics, but we're seeing a lot of patients that don't meet those characteristics. And yet they seem to get better when you put them on inhalers. So what are we going to call this, right? And we're going to call it something yeah. else. Um, and that that is due to a communications failure because there is something already to call it. These patients may have bronchial hyper-responsiveness. They may have elevated response to some type of stimuli and it can differ between patients that makes their bronchi constrict and that is a even broader term than asthma so bronchial hyper responsiveness or airway hyper responsiveness within that extremely large balloon asthma which is already a large balloon is contained within that other one right mm -hmm. so other causes of airway hyper responsiveness can be very similar to something like asthma, and you'd actually end up treating them very similarly. So mm -hmm. things like exercise-induced bronchospasm, which mm -hmm. is distinct from asthma that is triggered by exercise. Those are two completely different things. Mm. Um, and there, you can actually talk a little bit about testing. You, you can test out the difference between the two of those um, if you have access to the correct resources. Um, mm -hmm. Just eosinophilic cough would act very similarly laryngeal hyperspasm, laryngeal hyperfunction. Um, there, are, there are definitely subtypes of um, paroxysmal vocal fold motion that will, that will act this way. Um, 
trachea bronchi malacia, which is collapse of your larger airways, can can act this way. Although that one wouldn't, wouldn't you wouldn't expect that to show any difference with uh, an inhaler versus not. Um, many of these conditions, though, would have airway hyperresponsive. You could be you could have airway hyperresponsiveness to one trigger that may be mechanical, so a certain type of dust. You could have it to one allergen, and if you only had it to that allergen, should you actually call it asthma? Probably not, right? <laughs> There's a lot of distinction here. Mm. What I think that I the, the the big takeaway is: don't worry about whether it's asthma or not worry about the following two things. How bad is it? And is it getting worse? Mm. Yeah. And if it's either not that bad, but it is getting worse over time, mm. or if it's really bad already, those mean you've got to figure out something more, right? You don't have as much time to just go, oh yeah, this is probably asthma. It's going to be good. It's going to be bad some days. Here's the things I'm going to do. It means you might need to get a little bit more aggressive, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's in terms of both your diagnostics, but also in terms of your referrals, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's a difference between, and, and you all know this better than I do, right? There's a difference between clicking on a button and saying, I want to refer this patient to this clinic and it's standard. I want to refer this, <laughs> click this, click this patient and it's urgent. Right. Mm -hmm. And honestly, most of those go into the same box, mm -hmm. right? Although different institutions have different ways they deal with urgent versus I'm not going to get yelled at by some billing department, but that's <laughs> different than when you identify a patient in your panel and you say, wow, this person's really sick and I'm worried about them. And I'm not just going to send this referral over. I'm going to call my local mm -hmm. office. If even if it's an hour and a half away, I'm going to say, Hey team that I've sent people to before, I've got this patient that I'm actually really worried about. And this isn't a trigger that we pull lightly, right? This isn't something that we say, but this is someone I'm worried about. This person's been to the emergency room twice in the last, you know, blanky blank hours. They've been, um, they have ended up on uh, oral corticosteroids like prednisone. They're not even sure if it's making a difference, but things seem to be spiraling out of control and nothing we've tried has worked. And when you get a call like that, where there's personal experience and there's there's something said about it, okay, the tertiary centers or the secondary centers or the quaternary centers, depending on what you're closest to, they act more quickly because they go, okay, this person has provided a filter already and I'm going to bring this person in sooner. When it comes to those patients that are really severe or spiraling, while there are some pieces of workup that you can send, it's you all have limited time, you have limited resources, right? To devote to patients, you have less time with patients than I do, which and none of us have a lot, right? Yes. So it's probably most effective to spend that time on the ones that you, and then hopefully this ends up only being less than 5% of the people that you identify, right? I'm talking about the really ones that, that, that trigger that worry reflex, mm -hmm. yeah? Mm -hmm. Your time is probably best spent in ensuring their safety and pushing them towards a the center as opposed to going, oh yeah, what did I hear you know, Dan Seifer say on that podcast that one time about running this one breathing test? And, you know, because that's not going to matter is yeah. when you send them into us, that's not what we're going to do first either. We're going to, we're going to be, we're going to use the fact that we have resources and we're going to be super aggressive things that you couldn't do, even if you yeah. wanted to in a primary care setting. Right. Totally. Um, so what kind of things do you do in like the, the light or the medium cases, right? And most of those, you kind of handle the same way. It's just a question of how much you order and what you don't, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think the first thing uh, is worth talking about is spirometry or pulmonary function testing. Oh my right? gosh, so yes. Function, so many questions about is, how to order it and interpretation. Yeah. And 
Yeah. Great. Uh, And when to order it. Right. Cause it's like, I think that's a huge question people have is like, I want to send them to, they're like the light medium category. They're not like super short of breath. They're not going to the hospital. Like what, what tests do we do first? And like how to order them correctly is like hundred percent there a thousand times on the list. (laughs) So go for it. Go for it. So pulmonary function testing is really a broad term and it refers to all of the different types of maneuvers that we can run on a patient to th- that then allows us to compare them to their peers. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about spirometry, yeah. Um, within that there is, there are separate maneuvers and I know the order sets will say something like I'm ordering spirometry or I'm ordering PFTs, which mm-hmm. is kind of nonsensical, honestly, in my opinion, what you're ordering are these maneuvers. Um, you're ordering, people might call them tests, but they're not. You're, you're, we're trying to ask the patient to do something for us such that we can measure them what they're doing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then compare it to their peers. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you're asking someone, I need you to run a hundred meter dash, Mm -hmm. that's a maneuver, right? And there are rules to that maneuver, right? Because if you ask someone to run a hundred meter dash, And instead you just say, I need you to get from this point to that point as fast as you can. One, two, three, go. And the person like turns around, gets on their hands and knees and does like the crab walk backwards. I mean, yes, they tried very hard. They might be tired, um, but that's not going to be comparable to somebody that just like took off and started running like a biped, right? Like it's not going to, it's not going to do it. Or someone that like slowly built up speed, right? So there's going to be a lot of rules about what you're asking them to do. And the more rules that you ask them to follow, the harder the maneuver gets, but also the more comparable the maneuver gets, because now you're going to be able to say, okay, this person stood up, right. Started on both feet. They didn't have like a, a catapult that launched them out. Right. They were wearing shoes. I mean, I'm, I'm just adding to this, this joke, this metaphor. Right. Um, but if everyone meets those criteria while running this race, okay, maybe at the end of that, you can say that this person was faster than this person. Right. Um, you'll be able to identify both exceptionality, which is like the top end of high things, right? And pathology, which is the low end, right? That's the idea behind asking people to do a maneuver. So when you actually get a report back from sending someone for spirometry, mm-hmm. if you just click the button spirometry, most of times what will come back to you um, is one maneuver actually just one and there are a lot of numbers on that sheet but it's all coming from one maneuver and so you've probably heard fvc forced vital capacity yeah and that's a maneuver name yeah that's actually a maneuver name the vital capacity is a physiologic um number something you can you can measure but a forced vital capacity you're asking them to show you their vital capacity in a forced manner so they take a deep breath in and they blast it out as hard as they can yeah um and that covers a certain portion of their lung function. And then we divide it up into all these little slices. FEV1 is just the air that was expelled during that maneuver in the first second. All the other numbers on there are just percentages, divisions, whatever of that one maneuver if you just click spirometry, right? Totally. Okay, so what what am I even talking about? Well, why am I going into this? Um, it's because like, what do you order and what don't you order? Right. Mm -hmm. That's the question that you were sort of asking uh, was. And the answer is it depends on what you want to know. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to know, do they have asthma? There are certain types of breathing tests um, that you can order, but none of them comes back with, ah, the asthma level in their air 
that they breathed out was 2.5%. Now they have asthma. That's not how it works, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish it worked like that, like a blood test, right? Where you can, where you can order a blood test. You'd be like, that sodium is 112. That is low, right? <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way. Um, when you order these tests, what you're asking for is compared to their peers or to their past, if they've had results mm -hmm. in the past, um, has there either been change if you're comparing results to the past or compared to their peers, are they exceptional or is there a path, is there a pathology here? And if there's a pathology, what is the list of things that might explain this pathology? Mm. So when you order spirometry, there's two types of things that you will often see in the results when people comment upon it. Um, they will say something like obstruction or restriction. Um, that's also a little bit of inexact terminology. The correct terminology would be obstructive impairment mm. or restrictive impairment. Mm. Um, and spirometry is how you diagnose a, a obstructive impairment period. Mm -hmm. You don't, if you do spirometry and you don't have an obstructive impairment, then you don't have an obstructive impairment. Oh, so that's good. Right. So you finally something with, I'm, I'm not sure how much, uh, how much stats gets talked on the channel at the, on the channel, but, um, a, a, a pretty good positive and negative predictive value in, in essence, a hundred percent in some ways, right? Like if it's there, then you have one. And if it's not there, then you don't, right? Um, just plain spirometry cannot say that about a restrictive impairment. There's another maneuver you would need to send for. Um, it's a mouthful. Uh, plethysmography uh, is one way of doing it, but also nitrogen dilution. What usually gets clicked on the, on the order box though is lung volumes. So if you were sending someone for lung volumes, there's really only one question you're really trying to answer there. And that is, do they have a restrictive impairment or not? That's either there or it's not. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, I, I know I harp on the semantics of this, but that's because there's a difference between diagnosing an impairment versus having a disease. Yeah. Because it's actually possible, believe it or not, it's possible that on spirometry, you might not have an obstructive lung impairment. You may not have an obstructive impairment, but you may actually have a disease that causes obstruction. Mm. How is that possible? Well, mm. it may be that the time that we've tested you at, yeah. it wasn't happening to you. Mm -hmm. And that's asthma, <laughs> right? So that's what makes asthma. You can't send someone for spirometry that then comes back and then tells you, do they have asthma or not? Because maybe their muscles aren't spasming right then. Yeah. So you might not see it, right? Yeah. So if you sent someone for spirometry and it came back and it said they had a obstructive impairment, asthma is one possible answer. Yeah. Okay. There are others, COPD, maybe the maneuver didn't go well and the pulmonologist didn't read it well. Maybe they have a tracheal stenosis. Maybe they're having um, uh, tracheal bronchomalacia. There's other things on the list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what can separate asthma is that it's reversible, mm -hmm. generally speaking, if you give them a med. So if you sent someone for spirometry with bronchodilator testing, or mm -hmm. albuterol testing, um, what they do is they, we do an FVC maneuver mm. and then we give them under, under watchful eye, if, if the pulmonary function lab is good, we give them under watchful eye, a short acting bronchodilator. And then we see, mm. do they get better? Because you mm -hmm. do we redo the FVC maneuver afterwards. And so mm -hmm. if you have a patient who you send for spirometry with bronchodilator um, who has an obstructive impairment, and then they do the, the albuterol puffs, and then they repeat the FVC maneuver, which is part of this all testing mm -hmm. that you'd get, um, and it's gone, 
that's a really strong <laughs> suggestion that they have asthma. Okay, good. Right. So that that's that would be very useful. Does it 100% diagnose them with asthma? No, but that's a lot. That's a pretty good certainty. And that that sort of that sort of set of answers, that's pretty good positive predictive value that now you've got asthma. Whatever else you may have that's hiding else under there, you at least got asthma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what if you send someone and you do that though, and they have an obstructive impairment, they do the bronchodilator and it either doesn't get better or it only gets a little better and doesn't go back to the normal range. Well, now what do they have? Well, it actually still could be asthma. It could be asthma and they're being triggered so hard that the albuterol isn't working. Could be that they have COPD and they have asthma. The literal definition of COPD is having an obstructive impairment on spirometry that does not go away yeah. with bronchodilator testing. So yeah. these things get confusing, totally. but what I think is important to remember about all of it is when you send somebody for the thing, recognize that the test is giving you a piece of information, but it can't really give you the diagnosis or not, yeah. especially of asthma. And that's, what's relevant. Yeah, that's super helpful. I really appreciate that. I think, um, I think that it just brings up so many questions and I wonder if you want to get into, I, I, I'll, I'll give you the choice first. The first thing that's coming up in my mind is like, what are the, what are some examples of the, like, um, like high, medium, low in terms of acuity of patients? Like, what are the examples that you, that you see? Like, what would be examples of which one? And then I think the other piece that's coming up for me, so you get to pick which one, right. But like when it comes to ordering, um, lung function testing, it's basically spirometry or PFTs in the order set for most of the clinics that I've worked at, or it's only PFTs. And then it's like, okay, I'm just going to order this thing. And then I get this big, long list back. And it's like, well, I really only wanted spirometry, but I got this big, long thing. And so I think, yeah, I just, where do you, where do you want to go next with that? Do you want to talk more about PFTs? Do you want to talk about the different types of patients? Great. Let's, let's do both. I think the PFT one I can answer quickly. While I'm curious at those clinics, usually just from a building perspective, you can't just click PFTs and then get multiple maneuvers back. So when you click PFTs and you get a whole bunch of numbers, most often Mm -hmm. that is what will come back to you is just a bunch of numbers from the spirometry maneuver. A lot of places can't even do a lung volume. It's beyond mm-hmm. their capabilities. They may have the ability to do a diffusion capacity, which is a, a yet another maneuver, but they may not have the ability to do a lung volume test. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't lose anything by having all this extra information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If these numbers are coming back to you without any interpretation, that's a huge problem because that's like kind of getting an echocardiogram back and the... Um, you know, the person that did it saying, here are the pictures. It's like, well, that's interesting, <laughs> I guess. Right. But I need you to tell me what's up. Right. Totally, and so totally. uh, if the, it really actually shouldn't be legal to bill um, based on my understanding, unless a pulmonologist has read those mm-hmm. results. Um, and if the if the reading pulmonologist is paying a lot of attention, they will answer many of those questions that I was just sort of like dancing around there. Although I confess that those answers vary pretty widely depending on the lab and who's reading them. Um, If you are the only one who has to interpret this, which can happen because there are spirometers in offices, there are things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Following the most, the latest up-to-date ATS guidelines is the best way to go. And 
That won't tell you what to do next, but the answering the other question that you just asked will tell you what to do next. What are the examples of the severe, medium, and low? And that's why I kind of started on that to begin with, yeah. yeah. So what, what triggers me to think severe? Um, not just about what was really happening to the patient in the past, which does matter, but what's been happening recently. Mm -hmm. If in the last three months before you've seen the patient, they've been on multiple courses of prednisone or they're still on prednisone and they have not been able or some other oral glucocorticoid and they've not been able to come off because the disease mm -hmm. severity has been um, too high. Mm -hmm. That's bad. Um, you, you may not see the end results of this very frequently, but staying on prednisone will kill you eventually. Uh, it's not, prednisone is not one of those things where there are, you know, potential side effects from a med and sometimes you get them and sometimes you don't. That happens with prednisone. Not everybody gets really agitated. Not everybody gets, you know, you certainly don't get suicidal or psychotic, everybody, but some people do. Um, but there are certain effects of prednisone that if you're on it long enough, it's not a side effect. It's a primary effect. You're giving your body a stress hormone for a long enough time. You will get diabetic. Your bones will demineralize. Your muscles will waste. Your nervous system will start going bonkers. Um, your intraocular pressure will eventually start to raise. It will tell, tear you apart. And those things were like, well, they're just on it for a month. Yeah. Trust me, a month can cause more damage to someone whose health was already not great than you think. Mm -hmm. And so if someone is on steroids or receiving them frequently and doesn't seem to be able to get off of them, that is mm -hmm. automatically a, Hey, I'm concerned situation. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's different than someone who's like, I've had asthma my whole life. Once or twice a year, I get a five-day course of steroids. I always get off of them. When I'm not on steroids, I feel like I'm okay. I can do my work. You know, mm -hmm. That's a very different story. That would be more of a medium, right? Yeah. Versus a mild would be, I never take oral steroids. I have some trouble breathing sometimes. Once upon a time, a doctor gave me an inhaler. I kind of have it. Sometimes I spray myself in the forehead with it. I don't know <laughs> if it helps or not. Um, you know, And so that's, that's how I stratify. And hopefully when I was sort of giving those examples, yeah, the first one sounded like I should do something about that. And the mm -hmm. second two sounded like, okay, this is more like a diagnostic question that I can maybe dig into a little bit without having to be like action first thinking second. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Um, the, the second two, like one are we doing, I think inhaler technique is a huge thing. I have some big feels about inhaler technique. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a problem. I wonder actually, do I have my, uh, I've got one of them up here. I don't have the spacer sitting here. I think that's sitting downstairs somewhere, but um, just some better understanding of what the inhaler technique is. What are the different types of inhalers? How does that type mm -hmm. difference change the technique? Mm -hmm. um, makes a big difference for patients. So if you're not using the correct technique for the inhaler that you've got, your drug delivery can actually be zero. You can be getting zero of the medicine down to where it needs to go, 0%. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're doing the right thing, you can be getting a lot of the medicine down to the right place. And in fact, it can be more effective than nebulizers. You'll hear this frequently that patients are like, the nebulizers work a lot better than my inhaler, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So nebulizers are useful because when someone is having an acute exacerbation, they actually can't perform the correct inhaler technique. If they could, it would actually be better for them to use the inhaler because more drug can be delivered that way and better types of drugs can be delivered that way. Yeah. Um, there was a, a recent, I'm 
well, maybe recent is dating myself a little bit, but finally the ATS and American recommendations have caught up to what the ERS has been doing vis-a-vis um, -vis like the smart trial with inhalers um, that the old model of having someone on an inhaled corticosteroid and then having a short acting bronchodilator like albuterol, right? That they can use once in a while um, is uh, substandard compared to having someone on a ICS long acting bronchodilator combination inhaler, something like, um, you have to forgive me trade names. I intentionally forget them. Uh, it's <laughs> weaponizing my own attention issues. Um, but something like budesonide promoterol, which I believe is Simbacort, right? Um, that can be dosed and used in a way that is much more effective um, for both treating the disease from asthma control scores, but also for preventing patients from needing to go to the ED and preventing them from needing cortic oral corticosteroids to begin with, which is which is sort of the game. Um, I'll hush myself for a second. And you said you had questions about inhaler technique, though, so please... <laughs> Well, no, I, I guess, no, I just, I just was going to say that I have some big feels about it because it just like, it's, it's just literally every single time I have somebody with asthma, we've had multiple conversations. We talk about inhaler technique. I watch them, you know, it's just, it's a struggle. And I think there are people also, and I think a lot of people would concur that like people say that like, oh, well, I don't need the inhale. I don't need the spacer. I do it fine. And it's like, well, isn't delivery only like 30% or something without the, without the spacer anyway? Right. Or... Right. Let me show you. So it depends, depends on the, depends on the, the thing. So mm -hmm. there are two, where to start with this. Okay. Let's go over this way. <laughs> Make a distinction between their different types of inhalers in terms of which kind of medicines they deliver, mm -hmm. but there's also different types in terms of their delivery systems. Totally. So this one that I'm holding my, in my hand is like the classic, right? And this is an HFA. You may have seen that, right? Oh. Uh, hydrofluoroalkane. That doesn't refer to the medicine. It refers to the propellant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that shoots it out. Okay. So if somebody's got one of these HFA inhalers, I'm going to show you, and I think it'll be captured here, right? This is, this is just me holding it out and I fire it. Okay. That was even further than I thought. I have to move <laughs> my hand over here. Okay. I didn't see it all the way to the side, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hitting, it's, it is visually and physically, I can feel it hitting my hand all the way back mm -hmm. over here mm -hmm. and not, my hand is not breathing in, right? I don't have, I don't have some sort of vacuum cleaner in my hand. That is just the propellant from this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So unless you're giving this to a 10 story tall giant of, of a creature, right? If you put this in your mouth and you trigger it, every single bit of that is going into the back of your throat, almost all of it. Right. And so I find that the actual physical demonstration and being like, Hey, is your throat that long? Right? No, it's not. So even <laughs> if you happen to suck in really hard, right. When you trigger and you get a little bit of the medicine down, you're missing most of it. Yeah. At least 70% and most likely more. Yeah. Um, so the spacers are important, but so too is the breathing technique. The spacers don't help you in and of themselves. Mm. Where you're trying to get in, in actual asthma, where the, the bronchoconstriction, the muscles are the problem, that's not happening around the trachea. That's not happening around your main stem bronchi. That's happening in the smaller order airways. So branches and branches down. Mm. So your task is how do you get this medicine, which is in effect topical, it has to touch the problem, mm. right? How do you get it down there? Yeah. And so there's a couple of really important steps and I won't, I won't, uh, I won't, I won't do that thing where I'm like, tell me what you know about inhaler technique. I'll just show you. Right. And, but I'll be curious afterward, if there's anything that I did that you've maybe never seen before, or you've been like, Oh, I didn't even know that was important. And then Frank, maybe contrary to what is in the instructions, mm -hmm. 
for the companies. Oh, I'm excited. That, do that, it. That, that Go for it. Let's it. do it. So I will imagine I have a spacer, which is a plastic cylinder, which I don't have right now. Okay. So I'm shaking it up with an HFA. You really have to shake it up because the medicine will separate from the propellant. And if you just fire it, the propellant will be at the bottom. And so it will trigger out more so. Um, and you end up in a situation where you're not getting dosed as highly later in the month as you would be earlier in the, in the dose schedules. And it can't just be, yeah, shaky, shaky, shaky. You really got to give it a go, especially if it's been sitting around for a while. Okay. The so amount you give of it a big information in your brain, I just can't. Yeah. I just can't. <laughs> The number of times I've, I've repeated it perhaps is, you know, <laughs> repetition is, is it's makes it easier to store things. Um, <laughs> so you got the thing, you've shaken it up, right? And now you see most people stick them at, no, you don't stick it in your mouth yet because there's something in the way, right? There's something in the way. And what is in the way is the air that is already in your lungs. Mm -hmm. Your lungs aren't collapsed right now. There's air in there. You got to get most of it out of the way, especially the parts that are way down in there. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to put something new in its place. Yeah. So before you stick it in your mouth, the first thing is you got to breathe out. And most people will go, ah, I breathed out. No, because we need you to get below. Oh, well, that's, that's getting into some deep physiology there. Um, we need you to get more air out than that. You can't actually collapse your lungs by breathing out, but we need you to empty your lungs. So when, we, when you do spirometry, Mm -hmm. It's going to look weird when you do, when you send someone for spirometry, you do the forced vital capacity maneuver that I was mentioning earlier, right? I don't know if you've ever seen anybody do this or seen someone do spirometry. There is a mouthpiece, there's nasal plugs. And we say, okay, take a, when you're ready, breathe tidily, in, out, in, out, and then take a deep breath in. I'm going to show you what the maneuver actually looks like. Okay. Mm -hmm. Imagine I'm on a mouthpiece. You're not like just in air, but this is what it looks like. In, out, in, out. Oh. Oh my God. So you probably heard a lot of noise at the beginning. Yes. Right? Because that's a lot of air was coming out. That's why the FEV1, that's why more air comes out in the first second. You can hear it. But why was I sitting there like forcing it? That's what's actually required because there's still air in there. Mm. Yeah, there's still air down there. And believe it or not, if I had a flow sensor hooked up to my mouth, it would have shown right up until about the end, there was still air in there. Wow. Okay. Now, do I need patients to do that every time before they hit the inhaler? No. Okay. But I do need for them to get fairly close to that same lung point. So I need them to get close to that amount of air out, but I don't need them to force it. So there's another maneuver called a slow vital capacity maneuver. And that looks like this. That's like a lot longer than I thought. So I got this pretty close to the same amount of air out, but I didn't have to try as hard because I was going easy. Mm. Yeah. So we, you have to sh I show them this in the office. I see this is, we're going to do it together. And mm. I keep moving the hand like this. Or if I'm on a video visit, I move my hands so they can make sure they're seeing or I snap if we're just on a phone visit. Mm. And I say the whole time I'm snapping, I'm exhaling. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Gently, gently, gently. So you get it all out. Yeah. Mm. Now, once you've got it all out, then we got to stick this thing in our mouth and we're going to imagine, right, that I have a spacer here. Yeah. So that there's, there's another thing here. Keep, keep reminding everybody there's another piece here. Um, I always jest with my patients. I'm like, I know you don't know this part 
or rather, I know you know this part, but I'm going to say it out loud anyway, because I've certainly run it. I mean, there's, you don't want it in front of your teeth. That doesn't help anybody, right? Um, but it, actually, you don't want it like this either, where your teeth are resting on top of it. What you need is your lips sealed, but your jaw open. Mm. So lips sealed. Hmm. And I did there. So I show them. I got, hmm. Hmm. You drive down your jaw, which gets your tongue out of the way, which will help prevent this from just nailing your tongue and either causing glossitis or making it more likely that you're going to get thrush or something like that, right? So then you're down like this. You don't do this. You don't do this. You want a neutral neck, right? So you've shaken this up. You've done a really long, slow breath out. You've stuck this in your mouth the correct way. And with a spacer, you'd then trigger this. And then you'd breathe in like I'm about to show you. So all this is ready, all this is done. Trigger. Okay. Awesome. So what you've done there is you've long slow breath in mm -hmm. and then you hold it for eight seconds so you you've gotten the medicine down where it needs to go mm -hmm. and then you've allowed it time that eight seconds to deposit mm -hmm. once it's stuck down there mm -hmm. then you breathe out and one of the reasons that it's so important to go so slow the spacers have a whistle on them and if you go too fast they whistle but that whistle is too high actually you should go slower if you're using one of these hfas mm -hmm. because what you're trying to do if you breathe in quickly and go <laughs> Yeah. The fastest way that the air will go down into your throat is turbulent flow. The air spins or mm -hmm. jostles, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like if you have a jug of milk, right? And you're trying to pour it through a tiny hole, mm -hmm. right? If you wanted to just get the most milk out of the jug as fast as you can, you would turn it upside down and shake it and just would all pour out. But not a lot of it would go through the hole, right? It would yeah. splash around, right? If you wanted to get the most through the hole, you have to pour it nice and slowly. And you all think about like the milk. It's like, okay, it's a, it's a smooth part. There's a word for that, laminar. You're creating laminar flow. And laminar airflow means the air, and in this case, the air that is containing the medicine, stays in the middle of your airway and it's not interacting with the sides of your airway as much. And because of that, less medicine gets wasted as it's going on down, right? And it can get to where it needs to go. Yeah. And so that whole thing that I just showed you was one puff. Mm. You don't go two puffs and breathe it up. That was one puff. And so if, if an inhaler says two puffs in the morning, you do that once, and then you can immediately just do that again. But if you think about this, that's not an easy thing to do. That whole maneuver I just showed you. If someone's short of breath and they're tachypnic, mm -hmm. They're never going to be able to do this. Totally. And so now, by the time they're not feeling well, it's hard for them to use the inhalers, Yeah. right? So inhalers function much better as armor than they do as quick relief. They work as quick relief, right? But the sicker someone gets, the less the inhaler is going to help them in the short term. Yeah, and that's why nebulizers exist or other people do different things in the hospital. Yeah. Um, so if... We're talking about the light mediums, right? What would be the guideline-driven approach to them? If you think you an asthma or something similar to it that would respond to the same medicines, I don't consider them to have failed inhaler therapy until I have told them that in person. Mm -hmm. I have given them one of the new, the combination ICS LABA inhalers. You don't necessarily need to start with a high dose version of that. So speaking of budesonide promoterol, AKA Simbicord, right? There's an 80 slash 4.5 microgram variant and there's 160 slash 4.5 microgram variant. Um, 
you don't have to start with the 160, you can, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you could start with the 80, especially in the moderates, right? Two puffs in the morning, two at night. And I say, listen, try this technique. Mm -hmm. It's possible, and actually very frequent, um, that within two weeks, they're like, wow, that's working great. Why did this never work before, right? <laughs> um, but it can take up to six weeks mm -hmm. to know because the inhaled corticosteroid component doesn't work quick. It takes time. It's a, it's a mic. We're talking 80 micrograms, right? So that's one, one thousandth of a gram of something like prednisone, right? It's tiny. That's not even talking about potency, but it's tiny, tiny doses. It takes a while for that part to have an effect. The part that could work sooner would be the long acting beta agonist. Yeah. Um, there are differences amongst the long acting beta agonists. Salmeterol was the first one on market It is the least good of them. Um, the higher quality ones are Fomoterol, which is what's in the budesonide Fomoterol. Also Volantrol, which is, I think, the um, fluticasone. Volantrol is the other type of inhaler structure, which is a DPI, which stands for dry powder inhaler. Um, the Volantrol is also one of the higher quality, more potent, quicker acting, um, long acting beta agonists. And they work so quickly, actually, they work almost as quickly as albuterol. So, you know, many times now we just give patients that inhaler. We don't even give them this one. And we say, when you're having an acute attack, you should just hit your Simbacort. Yeah. Um, or your, you know, your Budesonide from Motorol. Oh, that's uh, so fascinating. Cause I've actually had a lot of people say stuff like that, but it must just be, yeah. They're like, Oh, well, whenever I feel sick, I just take, I don't like using brand names either, Yeah. but I will say Simbacort. Um, I will just use that. And it's like, you know, in, in textbook, it seems like it's like, Oh, that should take a really long time, but that makes sense that it's the beta agonist that's helping. So, yeah, quickly, very quickly, yeah. because promoterol is actually pretty quick acting and it's way more potent than albuterol too as a molecule. So if you're able to get promoterol down there, mm. it's going to make a, it's, and that's the actual problem. It'll make, it'll have a really beneficial effect mm. pretty quickly. Um, for your listeners, if they want to learn more about this, the current ATS and ERS guidelines have caught up to each other a little awesome. bit, but ERS does sort of still lead the way. And they refer to this as flex dosing, so F L E X dosing mm -hmm. of a ICS lava. And the cool. trials, the, the first one that sort of started to show this really robust effect um, in, a, in a good way was the SMART trial over in Europe. So SMART, that's, awesome. that's worth digging that. into if people have more questions. Totally. And so I want to, I want to be mindful of our time. Where do you, where do you want to go from here? I have one follow-up question about the kind yeah, of like please. mild to spicy level of patient referral. I think like, I think, uh, well, first of all, I want to just like, thank you and acknowledge you for saying like picking up the phone and like talking about a case with a, with a clinic. So yeah. many newer clinicians are like, I don't want to bother anybody. And it's like cold calling is the way to go. And literally every specialist that I bring on this channel verifies that like, just call us. We'll just talk about yeah. it. It's great. Right. Yeah. Um, for those more urgent patients, I think the thing is for like, um, I guess I don't, if you have any like pearls of practice about the, the, um, the light medium patients, like they probably should have an appointment because they're sort of doing okay, sort of not maybe with their asthma, or maybe we're not sure about a COPD diagnosis. Like, do you have any, like, I guess, I guess from one of the questions was about, um, are there, this comes up with a lot of specialists where it's like, is, are there patients who are sent to you that are not appropriate? Or that you're like, wow, I really wish they had done something first or from the, you know, cause I know you're not in like kind of like quote unquote regular pulmonology at this point, yeah. but primary care providers That's really do want to know that. Like, is this an appropriate referral? What should I have done more? Did I send a late referral? Right? Like what's something that I missed? Like any, any thoughts about that? Great question. Um, and yes, I, I confess that the answer in your local area 
uh, may be very different mm -hmm. than me, right? So I'm going to try and answer more of the general pulmonologist than the quaternary, you know, severe asthma ILD sort of perspective here, right? Um, although I'll start with the part of the answer that I think is the same for both. And this is focused on asthma here for a moment. If you're giving repeated courses of corticosteroids and that goes on for three months, that is too long. Yeah. So if, if some, it's the severe cases that need to come through quickly, the other ones, they might need an appointment. They might not, but the chances of if asthma is what is on the list. And remember one of the things I was using to class severity was you're noticing that it's getting worse and worse. Right. Yeah. So, but if someone's not getting worse and worse over a six month period, yeah. it's probably not one of those things you're, you're not going to run out into a case there where it's like, Oh, the specialist wish I'd referred them years ago and something should have been done immediately. Oh, so you won't yeah. making that distinction between medium and spicy, so to speak, right. Is, is the most important for how quick I should get them and make the call. Um, are there things that should not be sent in? That's a good question. Ooh, give it to me. I get on your soapbox. I, <laughs> I, I take, I don't think there's hmm, this, and this may, again, maybe some community physicians are going to come running after me with, with a stick here. Um, but if I, I don't believe that independent people, um, should be responsible for the failures of the American health system. Mm -hmm. So the right time to call a specialist or refer to a specialist, um, is when you're uncomfortable and you have a question. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. training was such, or your environment is such, or the local setup is such that you don't have that option or that you're being punished for trying to utilize that option, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. Um, you know, we need to be helping people to understand and increasing the comfort level with which patients you keep with you. But if you're starting to feel uncomfortable, that's when it's reasonable to call, right? Um, I think that the very basics, if asthma's on the differential and patients aren't meeting the severe, right, is I do think that a trial of something like budesonide trimoterol or one of the other high quality ones gone through in the way we just described with the patient getting the right expectations about six weeks of time and that kind of thing. Um, a basic, potentially a basic chest x-ray to look for other, other um, mimic pathologies, right? Um, and maybe potentially baseline spirometry. Those are reasonable things to do before you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to send people on because just saying someone has uncontrolled asthma and clicking the box in mm -hmm. doesn't help yeah. because what is it? What did they, did anyone attempt to control it? Do they even have <laughs> asthma? Now, sometimes those questions may be, nobody knows because it's really been a difficult case and the patient may have tried stuff, but we're not sure if it's the inhaler that's not working or if the patient's not using it correctly, but what, for whatever reason, they keep ending up on all this um, stuff and like the, the spirometry is abnormal, but it's not reversing with the, okay, that's, that's referring, but that's very different than a patient coming into your office and them going, I have asthma and I feel like it's bad. And you asking them questions and you're like, I don't know if I feel like that's bad. I feel like you <laughs> cough a couple times. Right. And then putting in an urgent referral to pulmonary for uncontrolled asthma, yeah. because then when, by the time we're triaging a referral like that, it's like, well, I'm going to send that to general practice at our institution, not even pulmonary. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. And I really do stand behind that same feeling of like, there are some challenge, there are a lot of challenges in our healthcare system. And, um, yeah, I think there's, there's like a both and there of like, 
especially for newer clinicians and speaking from the nurse practitioner perspective is like, what are the resources we can look at? What is, what is the best we can do in terms of our workup and understanding and collaborating and asking questions and then referring when it's appropriate? Like, I mean, that's like a felt sense over time, right? But like, what, how can we do our best due diligence first and then kind of tag people in? Um, but I just appreciate you acknowledging that it's, there's a healthcare system that's not, that's not really, not really well set up for us. Um, so I guess I, I, I'm wondering about where we should go from here. There were a lot of questions about long COVID, um, COPD, and um, I know you and I talked about interstitial lung disease and LFA1 antitrypsin. Don't know if I'm saying that right. It's been a yeah, while. You're, you're saying um, it correctly. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's it, a very different yeah, thing than interstitial lung disease, that particular condition. Totally, um, totally. But I feel like, did the, we talk about that? We wanted to talk about that. I know there were questions from the people about it, but I don't interesting. know. Interesting. About, about Alpha One. Okay. Um, well, oh, well, if I get to pick where we drive a little bit, um, I think I'll drive it to the part that I think that I'm um, perhaps most enmeshed in day to day, which would be oh. interstitial lung disease slash interstitial lung damage. Um, because there is one takeaway and I'll say it now and I'll probably repeat it again as we're talking about this. The only way to know if somebody has interstitial lung damage or not is a high resolution CT scan of the chest. That is the I'm only so way to know. I'm glad you brought up CT scans because I really want to talk about that. Go ahead, go ahead. Period. So chest X-ray doesn't do anything. It may have a decent positive predictive value. So if you see it on a chest x-ray, okay, great, it's there. But most of the time with an interstitial lung disease or a source of interstitial lung damage, um, you're trying to answer the other question in a general practice. You're trying to answer, do they have it? Mm -hmm. It seems unlikely, but we should check. Yeah. And the only way then to have a negative predictive value, what's the statistical like usefulness of a negative test, that is a high resolution CT scan of the chest, period. Mm -hmm. Without that, you don't know if they have it or not. I mean, I suppose, you know, if they die, pathology, right? But like, hopefully not, right? So you, a high resolution CT scan of the chest is the only way to know. Um, are they perfect? No. Uh, do they definitely rely on the reading team? Yes. Uh, Every single scan that comes through our interstitial lung, our collaborative interstitial lung disease um, group, we have actual thoracic radiologists that read these, not these are radiologists that have been especially devoted their career to imaging of the thorax. Wow. So that's yeah. what it takes. And so the, the, the decision about what type of damage they have, what we might want to do about it, um, mm. that's actually not just beyond primary care. That's beyond community centers, in my opinion, my strong opinion, yeah. um, that, and it's beyond the pulmonologist most of the time, in my opinion, frankly, too. So when we started this collaborative clinic here um, at our center um, in 2018, right, we, when I say we, um, my partner in this is Dr. Juliana um, Desmarais, and she is a rheumatologist. And we both had expressed frustration to one another that the way that physicians or whoever the privileged old uh, white dudes did 100 years ago divided up the body, right? We divided it up on like gross anatomy, pathology, right? It's like, okay, well, we cut this big old lump out. That's a lung. This is the heart, right? But that's, that's nonsensical when we're dealing with conditions that actually affect the entire body. And then you end up with this incredible problem of care fragmentation 
where these patients with these conditions that are not only life-threatening, they're probably going to take their life at some point, get mm -hmm. bounced around between providers that aren't talking to each other with the wrong things being done and the right things being missed and everything being delayed before they finally get spat out to a quaternary care center. And then maybe the right thing happens. And we were really frustrated about that. And we're like, well, we can't control everything. We're not going to just like, you know, overthrow the government and say that the, this is the only thing that matters in America is the correct diagnosis and treatment of interstitial lung damage. Um, but what can we change from our perspective, right? We said, nobody should own this anymore. Mm -hmm. Pulmonary shouldn't own this. Rheumatology shouldn't own this. Um, the correct owners are the is a clinic specifically devoted to this in which there's a shared interest of providers from different subspecialties and different disciplines that are committed to seeing these patients and making these diagnoses because one person can't do it all to the best degree that it can be done. Mm -hmm. I know we were talking before we went live here. That doesn't mean that you can't, a pulmonologist can't try. Now I'm talking to general practice. Pulmonologist doesn't mean don't try, um, <laughs> but it does mean that for these conditions in particular, there are things that might actually help them if a certain diagnosis is made versus another, that you do not have the resources to both diagnose or deliver quickly in a community setting. You just don't have them, right? Um, you definitely probably have not written for rituximab. And if you have, you haven't done it quickly. You don't have anyone who knows how to um, to watch or manage the side effect of those medications. Um, prednisone is not a substitute for other types of immunomodulation. And I could just go on and on and on, right? And we started with Dr. Demaray and myself as the two providers that were sort of going to co-see these patients. The patient would come in, we'd both see them, we'd both make a decision, we'd look at the imaging, we'd work with in concert with our thoracic radiology team, um, who, with it, which at the time was uh, one person that was working with us, and then move on. And now we are well, we're bigger. That's just, we're a lot bigger. So we've got now, I think, four dedicated pulmonologists, soon to be five, um, uh, three dedicated rheumatologists, three thoracic radiologists that work with us. And then through the, what has grown off of that from a sarcoid perspective, which is one of these conditions that can cause um, issues like this, sarcoid is even more notorious for other types of organ involvement. And so for there, we have dedicated provider members from electrophysiology, heart failure, general cardiology, dermatology, um, ophthalmology, neurology, you just stack, 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 cool. right? And that's something we get to do, right? That's yeah. something because that's what our, that's what our, that's the privilege that we have at this institution is having all these experts at easy fingertips, right? Mm -hmm. But we can't go out into your community and get these people. We can't just go grab them, right? And really bad things can happen if these people aren't referred quickly. So what is the referral versus not referral about this? Yeah. The high resolution CT scan, right? If you get a high resolution CT scan and it mm -hmm. really doesn't show like there's anything weird going on in the lung. Mm -hmm. Okay. Everybody can take a breather for a second. Yeah. 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 Um, there are differences of course for sarcoid because sarcoid can kill you in other ways through heart involvement or through brain involvement. Um, but if we're just speaking about lung for a second, if you have a clear, normal red or close to it, high resolution CT scan, you can feel a lot easier and you can take your time. Maybe you go to a community center. If on the other hand, you have a high resolution CT, someone comes in and says, I'm feeling short of breath and you get a high resolution CT scan of the chest and it either shows interstitial lung damage, yeah? Or it shows pulmonary fibrosis, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a second. 
that doesn't that needs to go to a to a a multidisciplinary care center, a tertiary referral center, and not like mm. six months from now. It needs to go. That's where they need to get seen, right? And maybe, maybe it's like, oh, this is minor. There's nothing to do about it. Okay, fine, right? And maybe it's this is going to be we're going to be suggesting life-altering immunomodulation therapy. We're going to be doing all this. Like, that decision can't be made until the workup gets done, and that workup can't get done totally. where the patient is, right? Oh. So the high-resolution CT can scan is a big one. I did see that one of the questions related to pulmonary fibrosis, getting back, I knew that we were gonna to be touching back on some of these things. I'm glad we started with them. ICD-10 codes can, can burn, they're, they're ridiculous. Pulmonary fibrosis is not a diagnosis, mm. period. It's not a diagnosis. Pul pulmonary fibrosis meet, literally means lung scarring. Mm -hmm. That's what it means. That's mm -hmm. like saying if you had, if you said skin scarring, Okay. There's a lot of, There's a lot of things that can yeah. cause skin carding, right? Yeah. And some of them, like it, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge swath, right? Mm -hmm. And some of them, like this scar here was when I slipped with a razor blade being a silly, silly person when I was much younger and I almost cut my finger off slash did cut the fingertip off. There's a scar, <laughs> right? Is that a concerning scar? I mean, maybe for my intelligence as a 18 year old, but it, is not a concerning scar now because it's not spreading. It's not, my fingers not, nothing is happening with it. It is, it is stagnant and stable, right? Mm -hmm. So more so than the scarring, it's why, what happened? So if you have a patient, for instance, who got in, you know, it's just being ridiculous, but this is actually, I've seen this, who got stabbed in the chest by a piece of metal during a car accident, right? And six years later, they have a minor cough and you get a high resolution CT scan of the chest, HRCT. Um, and you look and there's a band of scar right where all the rib damage had been done. That's a very different pulmonary fibrosis than someone who's like, yeah, for the last six months, I've been getting a little short of breath, maybe a little dry cough. And you get a scan and you see, you know, someone says, well, there's scarring, it's worse at the edges, or maybe there's some ground glass opacification. Um, this is making me worried for interstitial lung disease or interstitial lung damage. You may see these acronyms that people misuse all the time, uh, NSIP or UIP. Those are not diagnoses either. Those are patterns of damage. They mm -hmm. used to be diagnoses because people were misunderstanding the problem. But so NSIP standing for nonspecific interstitial pneumonitis or pneumonia or the UIP, usual interstitial pneumonitis or pneumonia. If you hear any of those things on this scan, it's time. It's time to go, right? So that's something that was worth, I think, just going over and saying because it kind of answers the question. Um, the prognosis then of pulmonary fibrosis, it depends entirely on why the scar is there, mm -hmm. right? And if you can't tell them mm -hmm. because you don't know, yeah. someone else is going to have to figure that out. Right. Okay. And really bad things can happen if the wrong things are done to figure this out. Mm. The, even 10 years ago, people were really advocating that you had to make maybe 12 years ago, you'd really had to do a surgical lung biopsy to make a diagnosis like this. Mm. You do not. Mm. not even close. Um, and in fact, sometimes you go through all of that problem, actually all that trouble. And actually oftentimes it gives you no new information and it has put the patient at significant risk, not just because you've now cut through their chest wall for a um, video assisted thoracoscopic surgery, right? You've done that. So you can end up with nerve damage. You can end up with pain, yabba, yabba, yabba. 
No, because actually anytime you cut something and the body has to heal, you're activating both the scar system and the immune system. Mm -hmm. And if their problems have to do with overactive <laughs> fibroblasts or with their immune system, they will flare and get worse because of your diagnostic test that you did that you didn't even need to do and they might die. Yeah. So these aren't like, oh yeah, mild, meaty, spice, spicy from the asthma, even in spicy asthma, right? Like a basic ED could intubate them, put them on a ventilator and they would die. There are things about interstitial lung disease, interstitial lung disease slash interstitial lung damage um, that there are only certain places and evaluate that the evaluations and care can take place. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's something that people should know. But on the flip side, if you've got a high resolution CT scan of the chest and it's not looking concerning, you don't have to be like biting your nails being like, oh my gosh, did I miss something? No, it's not there. <laughs> and if it is somehow there and the CT scan missed it, you've got some long time. You got years before this is going to be an issue. Yeah. So it's really stark. Unlike the asthma where it's kind of like a yeah. gradient, there's, yeah. there's a easy identifiable place where you're like, got to get this person in got to make that call. Like we were talking about to these bigger centers, right. Mm -hmm. Versus. I don't know what this is, why they're dysmic. Well, they have a little nodule in their lung and maybe there's a little bit of like irritation in this upper lobe. That's, that's not interstitial lung damage. That's not scarring, right? Okay. You got more time to figure that out. Totally. So I have a question. If we work backwards to like in the wild, in, uh, in general practice, what, how, like, let's like just bring it all the way back. Like, so if somebody sees you in a, in the clinic, like, what are you, what are you looking at when a patient's coming in? Like, what has you suspecting interstitial lung disease? Are they like dyspneic? They have a cough, they have a chronic cough. You're doing a chest X-ray that's showing some weird stuff. And then it's like, oh, recommended you do a CT scan. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do that. Like, is that the process? Like, what does it usually look like? So, okay. That's, so sure. If, if by the time it's, by the time it's on X-ray, things have progressed. So yeah, if, if an x-ray says this could be interstitial damage, the CT should be ordered that day. Check it out. Because <laughs> um, then you, that's the only way you're going to get your answer. The x-ray is just too nonspecific. Mm. Um, but I'm going to say something scary here is that this type of damage oftentimes in the beginning is asymptomatic. Mm. They won't have symptoms. Mm. Um, so that it can be caught incidentally it can be they had a CT scan of their abdomen and the bottoms of the lungs showed some interstitial, but the radiologist barely even commented on it. It wasn't even in their impressions because they got sent for a CT scan and whether they had a kidney stone or not and mm -hmm. just said, oh, there was some maybe some lung scarring down there. Well, okay, well, now a dedicated high resolution CT scan of the chest is warranted to actually follow that up. I see. Right. Um, what types of things, though, when it is symptomatic, uh, would you hear most of the time it's shortness of breath? Cough is possible too, depending on the etiology of what was causing it. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes cough comes early, sometimes cough comes later. Some types of interstitial lung damage sound oftentimes very allergic. I was exposed to this dust or I was exposed to this fire smoke out here in the West. Um, and I've just been short of breath and short of breath, right? Um, that's when you look, you looked with the HRCT and you see what is actually going on in this person's lung tissue, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are other conditions for whom you should have a higher baseline level of suspicion. Yeah. Um, and I say this because these are the patients that not only have a higher incidence of developing this type of damage, 
Um, but they're also the ones that we can also do something about to halt it or slow it down. And that's not the case for every source of interstitial lung damage. It's not. So what you may have heard of as IPF or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, that's actually, I know I was railing about the ICD-10. Not only is that not an ICD-10 code, it's not really a diagnosis like other diagnoses or diagnosis. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. Yeah. And anytime you're making a diagnosis of exclusion, which this is worth talking about because this comes up more than just in pulmonary, right? And oftentimes general practitioners will be trying to make diagnoses of exclusion, however you're doing it. Okay. Um, the That's like saying a diagnosis of exclusion is like saying, well, I see this thing in front of me. It is not, it's a fruit, okay? It is not a grape, an apple or an orange. So it absolutely is a persimmon. And you're like, wait a minute. Wait, what do you mean it's absolutely? You said three other things. It's like, nope, it's a persimmon. And it's like, well, but there are other fruits. And you're like, I don't know, no one's ever proven it. So it's just a persimmon. That's ridiculous, right? Because you've named and characterized three things, doesn't mean that everything that is not those three things is now the same thing. That's absurd, mm. right? Mm. But doctors don't like saying that we don't know. And the truth is, even though we put it in the name of this condition, idiopathic means who knows, right? Um, we still talk about it like it's a disease, like yeah. it's a problem. You could maybe, you could, you could um, nicely call it a problem. I call it a spectrum. You've, you've thrown it, remind yourself with the word that you're calling it, that this is we couldn't identify the particular other cause. So now you're in this grab bag. And the reality is there's probably like eight or nine different problems in that grab bag. And in the long run, in the long run, we'll find treatments that help some of them and not others, mm -hmm. right? Similar to how with cystic fibrosis, the early CFTR modulators, right? Only helped people with certain mutations because now we got down to the very granular, why did you have the problem? Mm -hmm. Most of the other treatments people tried for cystic fibrosis and before the, before the modulators came onto the market, they would help in some ways, but they were treating downstream. They were treating everybody as if they had the same problem, which they don't. They have it on a cellular level. They have a different problem. The protein is misfolding in different ways, or it's not getting translocated at the surface, or it's not the channel isn't developing correctly. And that's what eventually we're going to find with this grab bag that is IPF or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis spectrum disease, as I prefer to sort of like say it, right? Um, so the prognosis varies wildly because most people that are that have IPF spectrum disease, there's really nothing we can do. There are two medicines on the market, um, neither one of which has ever been shown to improve mortality, which are profenadone and nitetidib. Um There is, you know, oh man, would the companies like to tell you otherwise, but it, it is at best, at best, it maybe slows the disease down very, very, very slightly. So it's it's about as far from a home run as you could possibly hit. Mm -hmm. There are lots of things in trials and in pipelines, right? But those are accessible through tertiary centers, not through yeah. community centers. Yeah. Um, contrast that, though, with patients who have autoimmune sources of this damage or allergic sources of this damage, both things related to the immune system. It's just whether the immune system is targeting something outside you in an allergen or in the case of autoimmunity targeting yourself. Yeah. Um, those things can be stopped. They can be treated. You can do something about it if you're they're diagnosed and the right kind of team is in place and you have that team has the facility and the options to use those medicines because prednisone is not enough and it's not sufficient and eventually it will kill you 
just as certainly as the actual problem might, right? Or maybe not just as certainly, but it's not good. You can't stay on it for long. Yeah. Um, the patients that you may see that have rheumatoid arthritis or have um, probably don't see very many of scleroderma, uh, dermatomyositis, by the time someone has something like this, they're already at a tertiary center most of the time. But there are still definitely community people walking around with rheumatoid arthritis with things like yeah. that. So if you start to see someone who has a lot of other complaints, my joints get big, they get, they get big and they hurt. Um, my skin is getting tighter. I've got dry mouth. I, I'm always sipping water, 24 seven sipping water. My eyes are so dry. Um, look at this rash on my skin. My fingertips are kind of cracking uh, at the edges here. I've got these new papules on the back of my hands. I'm not saying that you immediately start worrying about lung disease in those patients. However, if a patient that is saying those things also says to you, over the last six months, I've been getting a little more short of breath, is CT scan time. Yeah, and it's referral time. Yeah, because the chances that this patient has a systemic condition that may be affecting these multiple different systems is starting to get high enough that you need to do something about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so prognosis of pulmonary fibrosis. There we go. In a, <laughs> the largest nutshell that has ever existed. <laughs> well, um, I could talk to you for like 24 straight hours of asking questions and hearing you. Um, unfortunately, we do have to wrap up. But um, what are hopefully, hopefully, I know you're a super busy person, but hopefully at some point, we can reconnect. I would love to ask you more questions, but, um, what are, I don't know, any sort of parting pearls of practice for, um, our, our people. Sure. And I'd say, I'd love to, I'd love to continue the discussion, uh, again as well. You know, I think that, um, SARS-CoV-2 and the symptoms and the damage that can be done from SARS-CoV-2 is a, is a, uh, relevant issue that, you know, the GPs of the world are, are taking the, the brunt of it. And it's worth talking about, but I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that other too. And we could, we could devote an entire hour just to talking about that for sure. Um, but pearls of stuff related to what we've spoken about today or in general, um, I think I'll go back to what you and I spoke briefly about before we went live, which is what I'm about to say is a challenge for everybody. I think it's a challenge for uh, quaternary academic physicians, for the most rural general care practitioners um, is knowing what you don't know and being one piece of it, right? But also knowing where you stand about reality of what you can offer, what you can't and what the patient can access and what they can't. Mm -hmm. There are going to be times when you are the best available option for three months, for six months, for whatever, because America's health system has failed its populace and there is no center. There is nothing to get them in, right? It's not your job in that situation. Don't put it on yourself. Like I have to be the pulmonologist. You don't, yeah. yeah you don't have to be the pulmonologist. It's you can't, right? Um, you can't, I can't be a surgeon, right? As we were sort of joking about earlier. I can't, I can't do a lung transplant. That just, that just results in a lot of arrests, <laughs> right? Uh, but, but we, we can focus on what we can do. And in those situations where you are the best option, 
coming to terms with the fact that you may be trying to deliver care that in retrospect, someone else might find out that they could have done it better. That doesn't mean you did the wrong thing. It means you did the best that you could in the situations you could. But if that's the, if that's the case, you have to be sure that that really is the case, right? Not just one of those things where it's like, oh, I clicked a little checkbox and said it'd be six months and that was it, right? It's like, no, I tried to call and this patient can't even drive. So like, where the heck am I going to send them, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's like, okay, I'm going to get on Dynamet or up to date. And I'm going to say, could I send some of these other labs first? Could I call a virtual consult line? Like, what can I do? I'm going to try to extend myself if I have the time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, On the flip side, just as important, if you're like, oh, this is an interesting case. I don't see many of those. I'm going to spend some time on UpToDate and Dynamed and all these things. And you never think about referral for something that you've never encountered before when the severity may be higher or starting to get worse. Yeah. That's bad news bears. And I think what makes these two things so challenging, both for academics and for every people, is that we get comfortable dealing with what we see a lot of. Yeah. And humans like to act in situations where we're we know the rules and boundaries, but the reality is that that changes patient to patient. The way you may have to act with someone who could drive six hours to a tertiary care center versus someone who can't, that might be completely different. And you have no control over that. And it's frustrating. It's really frustrating to be like this person, I would like to do this, but they literally can't come to my academic center. We are talking on the phone. They are in Northern California, right? What do you do? It's going to have to be different. And as long as and I'm just speaking now on my, on my, from my perspective, in those situations, I very clearly document this. I yeah. say all the things that I'd like to try, I can't. Mm-hmm. I've made that clear verbally to the patient. Mm-hmm. This health system, America's health system is a mess. Here's what we're going to try instead as the best available option, right? On the flip side, if someone's here and I'm like, oh, that's an interesting finding on echocardiogram. Why did they get really bradycardic when we ran this test, right? Mm-hmm. Should I sit there and just like page through my phone and be like, oh, no, no, what's going on? Or maybe I got busy. I'll call them back in three weeks. I'm right here. I can throw a rock and hit a cardiologist that is like got national qualifications. So I throw the rock, right? Why would I not throw the rock? And so finding, I want to, I want to just tell everyone that that's not something that you're alone in. Every practitioner, no matter where they're practicing at, should do that and get good at being uncomfortable and dealing with each situation as it comes. Um, That will serve you more than saying, wow, I really need to like burnish my knowledge in this one area so I can make up for the fact that there's no cardiologist in town. It's like, I mean, I could sit here and read books on cardiology for six months, it's not gonna make me a cardiologist. Right. Yeah. So thank you so much for saying that so eloquently, because I just like, it's so, it's so impactful, I think, because I feel like I say, I try to tell that to people and it's just, it's so impactful hearing from you who is such like a thoughtful, bright person to like, and like, you really care, you know? And it's like, you know, it's just, it's so, I just, I so appreciate that. So thank you so much for giving us your time. And I really would love to talk to you like all the time. So <laughs> thank you. For I'd be happy. Here. I'd be happy to make a return. Thank you for creating this platform. I think it's something that's desperately needed. Uh, and uh, clearly you're doing such an excellent job with it that there's actual listeners. No one ever listens when I talk. So, Hey, look, you are, you are the correct <laughs> tool for this. So thank you for even reaching out to me. I feel, um, 
I'm honored that you even thought that it was worthwhile hearing from me and I'd be happy to chat again if we can find the time. Thank you. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your NP friends so together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.